Hello everyone, welcome back. Uh, of course, it's a bit odd that I'm saying welcome back because uh, I wasn't here last week and I have yet to hear the episode, but I've, I've talked with Locke and Luke and um, caught up with some of the interesting ideas that were discussed. I'm very glad to be back. My name's Cameron. Yeah, g'day, Ken here. I'm glad to be back in the same sense. I'm Luke too, and I'm glad to still be here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Lachlan, and I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, now the lesson is moving through Genesis and we're up to um, Abraham. Actually, before we start, I might just apologise to our listeners for the delightful sound of rain on a tin roof. I am perched up in my newly constructed den at the top of my shed um, and I can reach up and touch the iron on top of me and it's raining quite heavily, so I hope that the noise isn't isn't distracting. we're getting into the story of Abraham. There's a lot to discuss. We have actually discussed Abraham at length in the uh, season we did on covenants. So we're going to try and navigate around the passages we've already talked about and dive into something a bit new. Now, uh, Locke, do you want to take us? And Luke, I think you had a preference too. Uh, what chapter shall we dive into? Well, I think we've, we feel drawn to examine the character of Lot. So let's dive into chapter 13. Um, the No, I was going to say we could start at verse 8, but I can no, no, already I think, hear I think before he speaks. not long. Let's, I, let's I, start exa- at 1. <laughs> before he speaks, I was in the middle of saying, I can hear Luke saying that we should start at verse 1. So let, <laughs> let us start at verse 1. don't even need to be here anymore. I could just make my contribution to the podcast by uh, Lachlan Proxy. Yeah, it, 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 it's implicit. Your contribution's implicit, Luke. Uh, okay, right, I'll well, start gonna... at 13.1. So you. Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham, Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There... Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Rise up. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, 
and there he built an altar to the Lord. Very good. I know we want to start I, I, off on Lot, uh, but I've got four topics that I want to cover. Oh, sorry, I, I, mean, <laughs> I know we want to get to Lot, but I've got four topics I want to cover before we get to Lot. Okay, here they are. Well, that, that should leave us about five minutes at the end yeah, of the lot. Yeah. So here, here they are. One, Abram called on the name of the Lord. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? So that's one. Two. Okay, I'll, I've got something on that, but I'll wait. Wait, I'll, let me list them. I've got the agenda. Um, uh, two, the land could not support them. Now reflect on the number of people that was with them, that that were with formed part that group, uh, those two groups, and the land could not support them. Um, think about how that might apply in our world today. Um, three, Abram seeks to avoid quarrelling. What is it that leads to quarrelling? Uh, allocation of resources uh, is one thing possibly. And four, this is a mystery to me. Uh, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him. Why did God wait to talk to Abram until Lot had left, till he was out of the room? What did he want to say behind Lot's back? Um, hmm. uh, so there you go. There's, there's just a few little... <laughs> What's really interesting, Ken, is that um, most of those were also on my list of mentally flagged eyebrow raises <laughs> as we read through it. Um, in particular, the, the calling on the name of the Lord... Picking up on this idea that Cameron introduced a few weeks ago, what's the first character in the Bible or the first part story in the Bible where someone calls on the name of the Lord? <laughs> yeah, that's in that's in Cain and Abel, where it's you know in the genealogies. One of the genealogies that said, "Oh, about this time people began to uh, call on the name of the Lord." Um, mm. But what's interesting in this story is, of course, Abraham. Abram called on the name of the Lord. He's the great patriarch. He's the hero of faith. Why did the author think it was noteworthy enough to record? I mean, what's implicit in that statement is that up till now, Abram had not called on the name of the Lord. Otherwise, you wouldn't, right. otherwise well, you wouldn't mention it. It's interesting for our listeners to remember uh, that this chapter comes after the story in Abram's life where he goes to Egypt and gets really scared and... Um, effectively hides the information that Sarah is his wife. So, yeah, I mean, I wonder, Cam, whether there's any sense in which that phrase here might be contrasting back against the behaviour of Abram in Egypt. Or, or is it simply in the past, in chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country. And so Abram did with hmm. Lot. Um, and uh, so God had appeared to, and then in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said. So in the past, it's simply God's interaction, God initiating the communication, if you like, with Abram. Uh, here we have a change where Abram initiates the contact with God. Has there been an occasion previously where Abram's done that? Well, the story of Abram only starts in verse 12 because uh, chapter 12 sorry yeah. um, as Lachlan and I mentioned last week chapter 11 ends yeah uh, with the genealogy down to Abram mm. and and locates him geographically um, so let's check very quickly the Lord said to Abram uh, Abram went as the Lord told him Lot went with him verse 7 the Lord appeared mm. to Abram and said yes he built an altar to the Lord in 8 
but it didn't call on the name of the Lord. Mm. Um, and then we've got uh, Abram in Egypt, where he doesn't cover himself with glory. Um, and uh, no. So the answer is no. Yeah. This is the first instance in which Abram calls on the name of the Lord. Hmm. What, what do we maybe make it is that? the first then. Maybe, maybe he had not called on the name of the Lord up till then. He'd done what God said, uh, but hadn't sort of attempted to do more than just be a sort of obedient servant. Uh, mm. and, and what does it mean when it says, uh, and Abram called on the name of the Lord, well, the for context what to me suggests, uh, suggests that he's looking for guidance, decision-making guidance. Mm. He, he does not know what to do Well, that in, that in turn is interesting because up till now God said to Abram, go and do this, and Abram's done it. And now he's met a situation where he needs to make a choice and God has not told him what to do. So hmm. if, if the calling on the name of the Lord means he's asking God for guidance, that infers that God has withheld hmm. guidance. God hasn't at least been forthcoming, hasn't initiated the guidance. And I think it's interesting, the sequence of events in the chapter. Abram calls on the name of the Lord. There is then a, a, a problem to resolve. Abram resolves it. And after he has resolved it, and Lot has left, which we'll get back to, then the Lord speaks to him again. Mm. So, now, we're wrong. First, uh, we've we've made a mistake because I've just gone back to chapter 12, verse 8. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Oh, so he did do it that. once before uh, right. when he built the altar. Uh, yeah, but, still. Okay. The point still remains that the yeah. the times at which he called on the name of the Lord appeared to be sparse. Hmm. Well, hmm. well, actually, but it is interesting that it's he calls on the name of the Lord where he had first built an altar. So yes, he, he does it at the, the same, same spot. He goes back to the same spot to call on the name it's of the It's the same Lord. place. I think it's the same place as in uh, chapter 12, verse 8. It is. It's between Bethel and Ai, east of Bethel, yeah. and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Uh, hmm. well. So, um, just, oh, I know, I'll, I'll get to it later. Let's let's continue puzzling this, um, this, this calling on the name of the Lord. Well, one of the things about one of like we often talk about calling on the name of the Lord as as something for guidance. Um, when when, however, you say that you there's another sense in which you can call on somebody's name, and that is when you are purporting to exercise the authority that they have. Uh, hmm. So, a power hmm. of attorney, for example, uh, does things in the name of the donee of the power, uh, the donor of the power. Um, uh, so, and and when we say do this in God's name, it's a little bit like saying, well, uh, I do this as God's representative. Uh, now I that, do it in his that, name. That's a very interesting insight, Ken, because that is consistent with the sequence of events in both chapter 12 verse 8 and chapter 13 verse uh, 4 and subsequent Abram calls on the name of the Lord immediately prior to some exercising of authority some decision making not uh, you know for himself in his household but as you observed Cam uh, himself in his household was a very was a very large number of people 
Um, so it was significant decisions that he was exercising over the course of action that other people would be would be taking. So that's very consistent, Ken, mm. that he he mm. is in fact exercising his authority as as God's appointed leader of of this uh, race of people. And sometimes I think that we're a bit too quick to go to God for guidance. Uh, now, don't get me wrong about that. Uh, uh, but I think God is as interested in us as uh, uh, free moral agents mm. acting in appropriate ways as he is about holding our hand to do everything. Mm. Uh, he is as much interested in us becoming the sort of people who will, uh, who he can empower uh, to do the things that, that we want to do because we will do the things that he would want us to do. Uh, because of the sort of people that we have become, and when we when we do that, we are then uh, uh, um, promoting His kingdom in the world, uh, and in that way, we are acting in His name. The question that was on my mind, which I think we've we've probably actually addressed quite well, is what would it what would it mean for one of us to call on the name of the Lord? What would it mean in 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 twenty twenty two? for a follower of God to call on the name of the Lord in this sense? I, I would be really interested to hear your views about what does that actually involve? What actual thoughts does it involve and what actual actions does it involve? Well, yes, what, what, what was the actual process? Because it, it seems to be something that you need an altar for because mm. he either builds an altar to do it or he goes to a place where there is an altar mm. to do it. Uh, that could potentially in the New Testament time that we live in could could be generalized to to a place of significance, maybe a place of worship. Um, well, it, it, it could well be that it, it it is an act of worship in addition to mm. whatever other purposes it might have, keeping in mind that we we in our in our uh, post-scientific revolution way of 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 compartmentalizing uh, culture uh, tend to separate acts of worship from acts of doing anything else. Hmm. You either worship or you practice medicine. You worship or you build a house. You worship or you uh, help somebody in need. You worship or you do your job. Hmm. My understanding of the way that Hebrews you know, Israelite culture works is that the act of worship is integrated into everything that you do to some extent. I've got some comments because I've been dwelling on this a lot in the last little uh, while. And um, again, I don't know if we're going to get through all four of your points, let alone on to lot. <laughs> uh, so, I don't know if we'll get five minutes for even the next one. Uh, first, first, I was going to say, before I get on to worship, there is a third sense in which um, the third sense of that this there's a third meaning for this that we've not looked at, and that is that um, this could be the first time that Abraham addressed God by that title. Hmm. Um, it was the first time that Abraham called on the Lord, um, uh, because remember, and I uh, don't have I didn't bring my Bible out with me. I'm relying on my phone, which is a very um, inadequate. Uh, resource for rapid scrolling between different texts. But 
in the story of the burning bush, doesn't God say, or somewhere around there, doesn't God say to Moses, previously I've been called the Lord, but now I'll be known by this name. Hmm. Um, that's where the name Yahweh, I am who I am, comes from, that sort of passage. And God sort of establishes for himself a new name. Uh, so maybe, maybe uh, I'm trying to think what the Hebrew is for the, the Lord. Is that Shaddai? I think it might be Adonai. Adonai. Um, uh, maybe what the author is saying is here is that's the first time that Abraham addressed God by that title. Uh, he mm. talked to God often, but this was the first time he called on the name of the Lord. Uh, I don't know where that takes us. Uh, as far as worship, I've been meditating on worship. Uh, Ken and I were speculating some time ago as to whether or not we could fly our aeroplanes as acts of worship. Now, before someone tells me that that's... But why were you speculating on that, Ken? Well, because we enjoy flying aeroplanes. And before someone points out to me that that's a very indulgent thing to do for an act of worship, I would, I would ask you to explain to me how flying an aeroplane is any more indulgent than singing a song. Because singing a song is famously a great mood fixer. If you're feeling down, sing a song. If you're feeling terrified, if you've got soldiers and you're leading them into battle and you want to take their mind off the fear, get them to sing. Uh, if you've got so uh, sailors who are, have to do a lot of hard work hoisting a difficult sail, you want to make it easier and make it easier to cope with, get them to sing. Um, it's Singing is something that is very hedonistically enjoyable it's just great fun singing it makes almost anything else better to sing a song uh so um how is it then that singing is is part of our worship service and um flying planes isn't flying planes isn't and well look cam i i i fully agree with you that a uh, a fly past an acrobatic display would enhance a worship service in my personal Subjective yeah. opinion. Well, see, we're agreed on this, and I'm sure our listeners. You'd have can to write redesign in. the churches, though, to get a well, better you know, view of the sky. Do you know the only thing I could come up with is the only thing I could come up with is there are lots of niche pleasures, things that we delight in, that we that ought make us think of God. A nice garden, the stars at night, a sunset, um, a exquisitely um, performed Bach cantata, an exquisitely performed aerobatics display. If you happen to be a pilot and you can appreciate the finer points, you look at it and you just say, oh, that was such that was such an excellent thing. It was an example of excellence. And any such thing, just like nice music, should draw us towards God. Uh, it's just that music happens to be a pleasure that is more widely enjoyed. And that was the only reason I could think of why it should be included in church music. I then got on to, well, what's worshipful about the music anyway? Um, and uh, that's a difficult thing to answer. Uh, we could talk about that for a while. My end point, though, was to arrive at three categories of worship, and I'm not sure into which of these the building of an altar and making sacrifices, which is the only form of worship recorded in the Genesis, I'm not sure into which category that falls. So you can enlighten me, perhaps. First category was um, acts of service. Uh in fact, it's pretty clear that if you only had time to do one type of worship, it should be acts of service, because God has said very clearly that the true worship he requires is to look after the widow and the orphan. He said it in the Old Testament. He said it in the New Testament. Um, social justice is present at the beginning in Cain and Abel. It's present all the way through the Gospels. It's very clear that if you are short on time in church, 
and you only had half an hour to spend, you should spend it in helping someone. Um, uh, so that's I'm happy to accept that as the form of worship most uh, emphatically endorsed by God. Uh, the second form of worship are the things that we do because we can't actually help doing them. Things like eating. We need to eat. So, so what we do is we say, all right, well, before we eat, we are going to say grace. Mm. Um, we're doing it anyway. In fact, we can't help doing it. The reason we can't help doing it is because God made us that way. And so every time we do it, we're just going to um, thank God. And, and we could have in church a breathing, a, you know, a breathing mindfulness exercise where you stop and you listen to your own breathing. And it's something we have to do anyway. Why not do it as an act of worship? Um, and the third category of worship is things that we enjoy doing. So we say, um, I don't know what it would be like to be in front of God's presence. Um, and we are separated from his presence, so we're going to have to sort of guess. But I imagine it would feel a bit like what I feel when I listen to a nice piece of music. Or I imagine it feels a bit like how I feel when I look at the stars. Or I imagine it feels a bit like how I feel when I'm flying a plane at sunrise. And I've got the view from above and the clouds are turning pink and, you know, whatever else. And so what I will do is I will do that activity. I'm a, I'm a physical being and my mood is affected by my surroundings. So I will voluntarily place myself in surroundings that promote a thankful, uh, uh, contemplative frame of mind. And I'll direct those thoughts to God. Uh, they are the three categories I came up for worship. This is getting very long-winded. Um, so acts of service, uh, things we can't help doing, and so we might as well do them as acts of worship, and things that we really like doing, into which of those is making an altar? Right. I, I'm going to have a go at this one. I think that the first answer that came to my mind is that it's most closely connected to the saying of grace. I, I can't help but feeling that the the development of sacrificial systems where animals are burnt on an altar as a ceremonial ritual must be connected to the, the, the cooking of animal flesh for food, the, which, which historically is done over an open fire. Um, so I wonder if there's some connection there in this idea of, well, it's something I, we just have Look, to do. I, I think I, I, I agree with that. And, I, and to further strengthen it, there may be another purpose in an altar, in that altars are very much like cans, in that they mm. are a navigational aid. They mark a location as important, holy and and a you know like a lodestone or um something that brings you back or or keeps yeah. you um in the place that you should be because and i think it's interesting that in genesis when the altar's locations are described it's in quite a bit of detail um yeah i was l looking at you know, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Yeah. You know, things like that. It, it doesn't just say, oh, he, he was going through here and he, he built an altar. It's quite specific. Mm. So I wonder, Cam, if there might be, I don't think it's an extra category. I think it might just be one important aspect of the, um, whichever number category it was, the, the, the singing uplifts uplifts my mood and makes me dwell on things um, higher than myself. I think the, the one ingredient that you didn't highlight enough, in my opinion, is the sense of awe. Now, I think that you were accessing it because the way you described flying at sunrise 
evoked that feeling, communicated to me that feeling of awe. Uh, I think people feel that sense of awe when they, whenever they climb to the summit of a mountain. Yeah. Which yeah. is why it's no surprise to me that a great number of the holy places in human traditions have been mountaintops. Um, it's no wonder to me that the medieval cathedrals in cities throughout Europe are sp physical spaces built, it seems to me, in large part to cultivate that, that sense of awe. Let's make the tallest walls we know how to make. Let's make the tallest tower we can possibly engineer. Um, these sorts of things. And I, I certainly get that same feeling when, when reading of these, these altars. You know, the one that's coming to my mind is when Jacob, a little later in Genesis, has this dream. And when he wakes up in the morning, he's like, wow, that was an absolutely transformative sort of experience. That, uh, that has left me in a state of awe the only response I can think appropriate is to build an altar with this stone that was my pillow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so one, one yeah. aspect, a, a category, my category of music needs to be split into two subcategories. Um, we may play music to put us in a certain mood or as a response to a certain mm. mood. So we might say, I feel thankful, therefore I'll sing. Mm. Um, I feel awe-inspired, so I'll sing. Um, yeah. because Which I, that's not seems quite the same to, thing as saying I feel awful. Yeah, <laughs> but but in that case, that's that come that's coming very close to the category of things we cannot help doing. Yeah. And and when when we when we get to heaven, it's interesting thinking about the creatures around the throne. It, the picture you get is it's something that they love doing, and it's something that mm. they can't help doing. Uh, it's a, it's a, I guess, I guess. I guess we'll know that we're ready for heaven when acts of service are things which we love to do and which we can't help doing, in which case in which case, all three categories combine. Or perhaps they're just clumsy uh, because they're constantly falling down. <laughs> Indeed. So um, Indeed. just to come back to the calling of the name of the Lord for a second, I've been doing a little very, very, very brief research and unless I'm very much mistaken, and I could be in terms of specific phrases and whatnot, but calling on the name of the Lord is an action almost entirely unique to Abram. Ah. Huh. So it is mentioned, as I think Cam pointed out, that earlier in Genesis, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 4 as part of the, the genealogies. Um, but then every other reference to the phrase called upon the name of the Lord is in reference to Abram. Nobody else in the Bible does it. At least not with mm. that not with that particular phrase. Mm. Mm. That's that's interesting. I've got four things that I just want to raise in response to Cam's Ken. three categories. This is four more things of, of the first point of my last four. Um, uh, so the first is uh, we talked about awe. Um, I just want to share a bit of a beef that I have, uh, and it's the use of the word awesome all the time uh, to describe even things that are routine and mundane and quite nice. Uh, but <laughs> it, it, it makes... We seem to think that everything has to be big and dramatic and excellent and best and better, and we're not prepared just to accept uh, the beauty of the ordinary. Uh, it it has mm. to be awesome, and I, and I think we diminish our language when we use 
those uh, words uh, that have that are reserved for uh, the highest limits to you're, describe you're the ordinary things. And, you're and, preaching to the choir here, and, and it annoys me. So that, that that's that's the first thing. Um, uh, the second, and I think thing, it's awesome. <laughs> okay, touche, Cam. Touche. Um, the second thing is this. Um, uh, I'm just reminded of the words of the hymn until then. And pa- part of that is these words. Um, uh, and things of earth which cause the heart to tremble, remember then will only bring a smile. And it strikes me that, uh, I've look, I've done plenty of things that cause the heart to tremble. I've jumped out of aeroplanes and I've done competition aerobatics and um, there's, uh, you know, climbed mountains and um, uh, and played, you know, fabulous music um, and, and all of those things that cause the heart to tremble. But to be in the actual presence of God, uh, those things are... are a, a very poor reflection, and I really appreciate you bringing us to the throne room of God uh, and the creatures around the throne, Cam, because uh, that strikes me as being the uh, the pinnacle of the experience of any created uh, being. The, the third thing that I wanted to raise was I remember uh, uh, a year or two ago coming between Sabbath school and church, and it was on the Easter weekend, so it was on Easter... Easter Sabbath, uh, and uh, I called people out of church to come out and have a look at this because right over the Launceston Seventh-day Adventist Church, it seemed, although it was over the city of Launceston generally, there was a little aeroplane doing sign writing. Uh, and the sign writing was, and I don't remember exactly the symbol, but uh, it, it, it's, it's a symbol of, you know, a, a, a something plus something equals and a heart shape and 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 the cross is in there and it's so it's this it's this christian little uh symbol of 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 the the significance of the cross and how that means you know god is love and there was a little airplane up there doing the sign writing i think that was an act of worship uh it was explicitly an act of worship and that was that was flying an airplane so the answer is very clear on that the the hmm. The fourth point that I just wanted to raise was this. This is the most important one. <laughs> um, it's interesting, Cam, that your three categories of service did not include this category. Categories of worship. That, sorry, yes, sorry, your three categories of worship did not include this. Things that we think God would enjoy. Yeah. Do you um, know why I didn't include that, Ken? And, and, and I, well, I'd be interested to know why. I wouldn't include it. Because I think I can I can I can have so many mistakes about assuming what God would enjoy. Uh, that mm, yeah. That, that and and it seems to me that when we make assumptions about the sort of things that God would enjoy, uh, we so often get it wrong. Uh, hmm. uh, well, the point is, um, uh, C.S. Lewis mentions this in an essay he writes about church music. And he was saying, well, he, he was in the Anglican tradition and his question was not between hymns or contemporary songs. His question was, should we allow hymns at all? Because his church was used to high church with a highly trained church choir and Bach cantatas and wonderful music, but professionally done. And so there was divisions in his church between people who liked hymns and people who didn't like hymns. 
And C.S. Lewis said the one thing we have to get foremost in our mind is that God does not enjoy our music in the same way that we do. He has, he has musicians all around him all the time of a very high standard. Um, uh, he doesn't need the cattle on a thousand hills. He mm. doesn't need... In other words, Lewis was saying that compared from God's point of view, there may not be that much difference between the untrained, vulgar voices raised in him singing, you know, when well, vulgar is not the right word, but, you know, coarse voices raised in him singing, or the highly trained church choir. Um, we please God by our efforts only in the way that a young child pleases their parents. Um, the picture... The merit of the picture that they bring to you is not in the picture; it's in the child. Hmm. And and unless we we flatter ourselves too much if we think that we are pleasing God in in any other sense except by our enjoyment of Him and our enjoyment of each other. And Lewis said, if you if you played music that you thought God would enjoy, but you knew that many other people in the other church would find it offensive or alienating, that's not worship. And the only, the only, the only mm, that's time, an interesting insight. the only time he could, the only two scenarios he could come up with that he could emphatically endorse as worshipful were a high church musician throwing a few hymns in for the church members who love hymns, even though he can't stand them, um, and the the low church musician organising an organist to come in and play a Bach recessional at the end of the service because he knows that'll speak to a few people in there. Um, who he probably doesn't like very much, but they're part of the church, so he's going to try and do bring something nice them something. Mm. Um, yes, C.S. Lewis said those were the two situations that he could he could comfortably endorse as being worshipful, and that's why Ken, I didn't include the, a category of, of things which God likes. <laughs> Cam, I, I had I had the thought that you may not have included that car- category because the other three categories that you did mention all fall into it. Yeah. <laughs> well, or should, there's, should in any case, fall into it. There's an interesting observation I want to make uh, based on the comments that have just been made. Ken, your description of the aeroplane doing sign writing in the sky um, and to an extent the discussion of C.S. Lewis's comment on music highlights, I think, that worship, whatever it is and however it happens, involves a certain amount of intentionality. I, I genuinely think not everyone who sings a song at any point in their life, is worshipping when they do that. I genuinely think that many people in Christian communities who come together in church programs and sing together are worshipping. They, they, are, they are intentionally participating collectively in an activity that they are, that they are thinking. They're, they're, they're letting it intentionally guide their thoughts. Um, it's a little bit like you know, many of us eat sandwiches for lunch, but there's something a little different about the the communion. It's the consumption of bread. It's the same chemistry and very similar biological patterns of activity. But there's a certain difference in the activity because of the intentionality. So I wonder if this helps resolve in some degree, Cam and Ken, your quandary about flying. Could it be that flying itself is neither automatically an act of worship or automatically excluded from being an act of worship, but that there are ways to approach it. It, it depends with... on not on whether you are doing it as an act of worship. <laughs> yeah, I want... <laughs> it sounds a bit recursive, but I wonder if that's almost what's happening here with Abram, by the way. He, he, he um, 
calls upon the name of the Lord. There's an intentionality. He is taking an agency here. We've already identified this is different from some of the points earlier in Abram's story where the Lord comes and speaks to so, Abram. I'm I'm going to hypothesize something here based on, on what we've all just been saying. You can agree with it or disagree with it as you please. I suggest that in calling on the name of the Lord in these contexts, Abram is intentionally making the act of leadership and decision-making into an act of worship and service mm. to God. That, that, is, that is his aim in doing it, in calling on the name of the Lord while he makes these sort of big life choices. Mm. Hmm. I like that, Luke, because it resolves the problem I had. The, the ever-growing problem as we read the, these stories is that overwhelming majority of things we hold to be a fairly essential part of Christian experience don't appear in these stories in Genesis. Um, mm. And so we've talked about uh, charity as a virtue. We talked about, although I don't know if we did that on air, but we certainly talked about um, repentance. Um, mm. uh, and worship was the one that was, you know, wh what do we pull away from the story of Abraham uh, about worship, if indeed anything? But it would be remarkable if, if there was nothing to learn about worship from the story of Abraham. And I, I was sort of leading in two directions. One of them is maybe we make too much of worship. Um, maybe we say... And this is, this is what James says in the New Testament. You say to you're all spiritual, and you say to someone who's hungry, "I'll pray for you." Well, don't pray for them. Go give them some food. Like, like maybe, maybe we agonise too much over, you know, if half the energy that was devoted to arguments about music in church was devoted to helping our local community, God might be better pleased. Um, <laughs> that's that was the first thought and I had, and the, but the other was the polar opposite. Maybe we think too little about worship. Maybe we our, our our philosophy should be with everything. Mm. Can I do this as an act mm. of worship? And if not, if what I'm doing is incompatible with worship, why am I doing it? Mm. Uh, um, if you got to a point where you were doing an activity that you genuinely couldn't, in good conscience, devote as an act of worship, maybe you just shouldn't do it. <laughs> it, right. it is an interesting thought it, it, to have. And, and part of the what that means, Cam, is we have to put away this compartmentalization of the sacred and the secular, of the spiritual and the material. And what we have to do, uh, and it's a Keith Green song, uh, uh, um, oh, now the phrase has gone out of it, um, out of my head. It's not just uh, me. Make, make my life uh, a prayer to you, uh, mm. is the phrase. Make my life a prayer to you. Uh, not this particular act, not flying the aeroplane, yeah. not make it all a prayer to you. Make everything that I do something in which I call on your name in all of the senses that we've discussed in this podcast. Luke, sorry, I kept going. No, I was just going to say, it's interesting. Like you mentioned, you had a quote ready to go. We know this concept, and yet it's so easy for us to slip into the assumptions of worship as a discrete, separate activity. Mm. From what, yeah. from the decisions we make in our day to day lives, and and yet there's actually quite a lot of compelling evidence, and we've all had previous knowledge of the idea that worship is something that we should be aiming to do with everything that we. Maybe maybe worship is there, but it's it's not as a discrete activity. Uh, Noah was worshiping God when he built the ark. He was he was bringing into physical reality an expression of God's desire to save. Hmm. What a fantastic act of worship. Um, Abram, Abram was worshipping when he obeyed God and left 
and followed God and became a, a nomad. Um, you know, that's a uh, an expression of worship. Uh, so maybe maybe it is there in these stories. Here's an interesting one. Maybe we haven't got to this part yet, but maybe Abraham <laughs> was worshiping God when he disagreed with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. That's mm. an interesting one to ponder as well. Um, I th- speaking of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, I think we're heading into our that, last that, part. That that lot guy, um, he's he's a bit dodgy, <laughs> isn't he? I thought, Luke, I thought you were about to say. Speaking of, we haven't got there yet. <laughs> well, let, let, okay, if we're getting to the lot guy and, and Sodom and Gomorrah, no, we can't, we can't yet because I really <laughs> want to speak one one <laughs> one sentence to Ken's identification of the interesting concept that the land couldn't sustain. Um, that many people it's just a simple observation i've made the flippant remark many times before that genesis instructed humanity to multiply and fill the earth but the bible gives us no indication of what to do once the earth is full and i realize with humility that i've that i've actually been a little bit wrong in that haven't i because right here we basically have a statement saying this patch of the earth is full um so it, it it's just an interesting realization that um you know, I think in some sense, it's probably narratively, it is also helping to highlight the this idea of God's creation being degraded from its ideal. Because it started in Genesis with this garden that it was full of things that were good to eat. All right. And now we've reached the point where this part of the earth is, we, we're going to need to find a way to, to separate and spread over more land because the, the world's not full enough of good things to eat. So I think there's a sense here that it's, that it's painting a picture of that um, deterioration. It's also mm. interesting that when one comes to then allocate the resources, uh, Abram's example was uh, to Generosity. give the best to the other. Mm. See, I th- see, I think that's well, an act of worship. But, and here is the question I've been waiting to ask Lachlan all episode. Can <laughs> you tell me the two key words in chapter 13, verse 11 and verse 12, that show very clearly that Lot has disobeyed the will of God? All right, you can email your answers to that question to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and join us next week for the answer. <laughs> we, we don't have much time to discuss this. Um, the, the, the cities. One of the key words I would point to, Luke, is cities. Yes, in verse 12, good, correct. lot settled amongst the cities. Genesis has taught me so far in the preceding 12 chapters that cities always means bad. Um, just for Cameron and Ken, it came up in the context of the Tower of Babel and the story of Cain and Abel. Yeah, mm. there is there is a you look. In fact, you'll see. There are nine verses. The story of mm. Cain and Abel is nine verses, and it ends with Cain going against the will of God by establishing a city. Mm. Right. Yeah. The story of the Tower of Babel is nine verses, and it's about people who go against the will of God by building a city. Continue. Mm. Yeah. So, so I, I, that has given me enough time to find the other one, and I'm sure it is in verse 11. Lot journeyed east. Yes. Full marks. Yeah. East is east. always almost associated with disobeying the will of God in Genesis. Yeah. They they are ejected to the east of Eden, and Cain is banished to the east, and the people of Babel are spreading to the east, and now Lot journeyed eastward. So, 
Lot, um, Lot is clearly taking the wrong decision here, but um, it was it Ken or was it Cameron? The Abram has still been gracious and generous enough to let Lot make the decision. Mm. It, it's interesting because we're talking about Lot and the general assumption is he did the wrong thing. He was selfish. He took the best land for himself. Uh, he didn't obey God because he headed east towards the city. Um, uh, and so they're all the things in the story that we look at and we say, Lot's the bad boy. Uh, it's interesting that when you go over to Second Peter chapter 2, um, uh, he, Peter's talking about God rescuing um, Noah and seven others uh, at the flood. Uh, and then he says this, uh, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Hmm. Uh, See, I'm, where I'm is that? Not, I'm just not sure that Second Peter uh, paid a close attention no, to does. the story of Lot. It does. It, Honestly, it is. It's in the story because when when the people of the town come around to rape Lot's visitors, he says, "No, no, don't do this thing. They're they're in my they're my guests." And then he offers yes. his daughters instead, which is a slightly less yes. than virtuous act. Certainly, under yes. um, most, I think I I don't know where I don't know where. I had to interpret that one. Um, well, perhaps that's why he, the... that's perhaps that's why his soul was tortured. Um. <laughs> well, it, well, it's... What I would suggest is that I, I I was having a bit of fun with that one because I just find it interesting the parallels. But I'm thinking of a reader of Genesis, um, a Hebrew reader of Genesis, and you've just had the story. You've this is not very far from the story of Cain and Abel in terms of chapters of the book, chronologically a distance but not in narrative terms, a distance. You've just had the Tower of Babel, literally a chapter previous. And in both cases, you're talking about going east and living in or among or near cities. And Lot has just done the same thing. It's not necessarily, I would say, can evidence that Lot is a bad person. But I think, I think a reader would spot the parallels and say, Lot has gone into danger. Or he's, he's, he's going against the will of God, or he's in peril. You know, the, the themes that would be associated with these keywords, I think, would, would mm. speak a lot to, to um, a, a reader or a listener of these stories. And then, of course, in verse 13, it says, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So, yeah. I mean, it just makes it really explicit. But I think even without that verse, if you've just been reading the prior verses of Genesis... You could tell that that Lot was perhaps in danger here, and it proves to be the case. Now, just hang on. The men were wicked and sinned against the Lord. Yes. So, at this point in the story, no one themselves has acknowledged that they have wronged God, but the narrative writer can identify that they are harming God or has sinning against God. Ah. Yes. That's interesting. Right. That's yes, interesting. because this is quite a ways before Pharaoh, isn't it? Yeah. The the uh, the other relevant comment there is Second Peter isn't completely up a tree, because remember, even in the story of Genesis, God comes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham says, "Well, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't do it if there were ex righteous people," and God agrees, oh, "Okay, I wouldn't." And it turns out that there were only four 
one of whom was so on the edge that she turned around against the instructions. Well, um, and the, the other two, just, just, the just other two to of whom my... seduced their father to get pregnant. So just to, I was going to say, just to put a a little um, devil's advocate horned hat on. Were they saved because they were righteous? Ah, now here is the thing, isn't it? Here is the thing. It depends what you mean by righteousness, because that's where I was wanting to go as well, Luke. Uh, It strikes me that God is able to rescue. God is able to rescue, and he will deal with people as righteous, even when they are immoral. And that is, that is that is, in fact, very strong in the story of Cain. You get the sense in what the way God deals with Cain that he is trying to help him. At every step of the interaction between Cain and God, God is trying to help Cain. But the narrative is a tragedy in the sense that Cain does not learn at any of the stages. All you know, from the very beginning when God says you shouldn't be getting angry about this, it's not something to get angry over, it'll go bad, to the end where God says go and wander, and Cain instead goes and settles down in a single location. And then the narrative implies that the, the, the city that Cain founded is, is a pretty brutal, immoral place. Hmm. Um, but God's actions in the story are always about saving Cain, including after he killed Abel. Hmm. They're always about benefiting Cain. And just talking of that wandering as well, Locke, we look at Lot settling down among the cities. What does yeah. God command Abram to do <clears throat> in 17? I'm is not to, looking at the right page. <laughs> is, is arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So ah, to wander, yes. to remain nomadic, yeah. to keep traveling, which is the same yeah. thing that he commanded the people to do in the story of the Tower of Babel, and the same thing he commanded Cain to do. And in all cases, <laughs> the disobedience led to tragedy. I have a suggestion to make. Next week, the topic of our discussion is meant to be about the covenant with Abram, but... A few seasons ago, we had a very lengthy uh, season discussing covenants. So I propose, because I don't believe we've adequately addressed the story of Lot or the character of Lot, and I don't think we've even managed to address more than the first two of Ken's Mm. points, I propose that we pick Lot up again in our next episode. I'll vote one for that. I think it's a good idea. I I, I was going to suggest perhaps we could... I'm going to go and trawl through the rest of the verses of Genesis and look for passages of nine verses where someone goes east, settles in a city, and disobeys the will of the Lord. <laughs> See how many yeah, times good. I can find it, because I'm up to three now, and we're yeah, only good. at chapter 13. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, look, my, my closing comment is, I'm afraid, very facetious. You, you said that um, Second Peter isn't completely up the tree, up a tree. And my first response was, uh, which tree is that? Is that the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil or is it the, or is it the tree of life? Um, that doesn't lead us anywhere useful, but I, I thought I'd share it anyway. Um, I'm sure our listeners will have many more, much more useful things to, to comment. Uh, and please do at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And thank you for listening uh, to our discussion. And we will pick it up next week to... Uh, finish hopefully discussing the last two of Ken's initial first four questions before we address the story of Lot and we might even get onto the story of Lot if we're if we're disciplined and we hope that you'll join us <laughs>